Welcome to The Draft Board, where hosts David Song and Tyson Workington tackle the topics that you want to hear. From the rink, to the turf, to the court, anything and everything, this is The Draft Board. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back once again to The Draft Board. My name is David Song. I'm here with Tyson Workington. I'm also here with another friend of mine, and yeah, that's right, guests in back-to-back weeks. Mm-hmm. But we're also here with Jacinta Specht, a lifelong martial artist, neuroscience major, recent medical school acceptee <laughs> to the University hey. of Alberta. <laughs> and before, yeah, so I, I, as you guys might have guessed, this is going to be a, a martial arts special where we talk about not just the UFC, not just MMA, but martial arts in general and some of the things that that goes into one of the world's most ancient athletic and physical disciplines but also something that is very stigmatized and misunderstood by many in in today's world before i introduce jacinta officially and we get rolling however it is of course time for a uh, a feel-good story that we have maybe fallen off a little bit with as of recent weeks but want to look at a feel-good story you need to look no further than the current nba playoffs where the final four teams currently in contention none of them have won an nba championship since the nba merged with the aba american basketball association in the 70s i believe so you've got the atlanta hawks the milwaukee bucks the phoenix suns and the los angeles clippers and Tyson, what do you think about this this fresh look that the NBA playoffs has given us? It's definitely been really exciting to see some of these other teams getting a chance. You know, the Lakers and the Celtics, they have lots and lots of titles, very storied franchises, definitely. But it's really good to see, you know, like the Suns and the Hawks getting a chance to get deep into the playoffs and seeing some of these teams and some of the fan bases that we normally don't get to see. And yeah, I think it's been really good. And anytime that you can get some, you know, really interesting stories or get some new people, new faces deep into the playoffs, maybe even into the NBA finals, that's always good for basketball. And, Mm -hmm. you know, especially if say the Hawks make a a surprising win this year, I, I, I think that that would be fairly surprising considering that they were mostly the underdogs. Trey Young, his value is going to be exponential. And, you know, that's only going to be good for the NBA. So I'm very excited to see what happens for the rest of the playoffs. And, yeah, let's go. Me too, for sure. Jacinda, do you watch much basketball? Uh, no. Basketball, <laughs> I, I have a lot on my plate, and I have to choose my sports wisely. Fair enough. So <laughs> I'm a big Oilers fan, but most of my favorite sport, obviously, is MMA and uh, yeah. watching UFC, Risen, One, all those types of martial arts. So that's my favorite thing to do. How, how do you feel about the Oilers' uh, performance this postseason? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, painful, and especially living in Calgary right now. Um, extraordinarily painful? Yeah, extraordinarily. Uh, you get the... I was uh, being a little bit cocky in the beginning, and I was kind of bragging in uh, all these Flames <laughs> fans' face. Well, at least we made the playoffs. But after that disastrously experience, I got it back quite hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure yeah. you did. But that's how it goes with fandom sometimes. And uh, as long as it doesn't escalate to random acts of violence, then... <laughs> <laughs> all civil play. All civil. You know, fair civil play is fair play. And of course, uh, as we've talked about before, the rivalries... Mm-hmm. And sort of the fun back and forth that fans will shoot at each other is uh, is the spice that makes sports fandom worth uh, 
Well, it's part of the spice, at least, that makes sports fandom worth being a part of. But without further ado, Jacinta, I'm going to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the folks. And so why don't you tell us about where you're from, what do you study, and of course, how did you get into martial arts and how's that affected your life? Yeah, for sure. Uh, well, I just want to take the chance to thank you guys for having me on here. When David asked me, I was like, oh, you want me on? But I was like, okay, I guess I can bring a new perspective about MMA and uh, neuroscience because that was what I did my undergrad in. Uh, so yeah, without further ado, I'll uh, kind of introduce a little bit of my background. So I was originally born and raised in Medicine Hat, Alberta. And so I grew up there my entire life. Um, my family... Uh, we're mostly farmers, so we do a lot of farming outside the city. Um, we have a farm like about an hour and a half outside Medicine Hat, and so that's kind of like a little bit of a country brat background that I come from. But I mostly grew up in Medicine Hat, went to school there, did high school there at McCoy, um, Monsignor McCoy, it was originally called, they changed the name. Uh, and then, so part of the reason that I'm talking about MMA today is that originally growing up, I did what is called Shotokan Karate. And so Shotokan Karate is a style of martial art. Um, there's many different types of karate styles that people might not know about. Uh, Kyokoshin is one of the full contact. Shotokan is one of the uh, like uh, non-contact, very light contact that you would do. So I started at our local YMCA and I studied under uh, Sensei Zoroslav Caruso, and he is originally from Bosnia and was uh, one of the major senseis that um, came out of Dr. Ilya Yorga, who is one of the founders for Fudokan Karate. So um, some of my timeline comes back, like most of the time with newer martial arts, you can trace back your timeline of which sensei originally started the martial art. Well, my sensei, I can actually trace back to the original founder of Shotokan Karate. So um, with Shotokan Karate, sensei Ilya Yorga, my sensei's teacher, so sensei means teacher, if no one knows about that, um, he studied under um, Nishiyama sensei, who was one of the students of Funakashi sensei. And Funakashi sensei is the one who originally started Shotokan. Mm -hmm. So um, that's my generational lineage yeah. for starting mm -hmm. karate. So I studied under Shotokan, which was my primary style, but also competed in open tournaments, which means that you can compete against other different styles. Like there would be local tournaments where I'd compete against Taekwondo people or Kung Fu people or other different martial arts karate styles. Um, it was usually just one or two different styles that were competed against each other. It wasn't a mixed martial arts per se. Like we wouldn't combine grappling. It was just like striking sports. Mm -hmm. And so with that, I made my way all the way up to being a third Dan, so a third degree black belt in Shotokan mm. Karate. And how old were you when you achieved that? So I got my first black belt when I was 10. And then Impressive. my second black belt, usually you're not allowed to, you, you get a children's black belt when you're below 18. Um, but I was a special circumstance where I actually got to grade higher than that before I turned 18. So I got permission from the original head of the Fudokan organization, uh, Sensei Yulia Yorga um, and Sensei Vladimir Yorga, the one who tested me. Vladimir Yorga is the basically my the guy who gave me my belt. 
And uh, so I got my second degree black belt with special permission at uh, 12 years old. And then at 18, so normally when you go to grade for your uh, third Dan, you're supposed to be 21, but I got special permission to grant. Because you were just that good? Yeah, I skipped quite a few belts, and Mm. I was a high enough level that I actually competed in national tournaments and went overseas for world championships. And so my specialty wasn't sparring, which most of you see on uh, TV when you watch mixed martial arts. What you actually see, what I actually did was called kata. Yes. Kata is a series of patterns that kind of make... I don't like to compare it to this because it's not. It's not dance, but it's kind of like that. It's graded like you do a series of patterns, and then all of a sudden you'll get a score for that. So it is Mm kind of like a – it's a routine, you could call it. And I was exceptionally good at that, which helped me – gain world medals actually overseas and in she's Vegas. a big deal <laughs> no no i'm not <laughs> but it was a long time ago and uh, those are fun to do and yeah so that's kind of my initial introduction to uh, martial arts currently right now i do brazilian jiu-jitsu I had to start from the beginning, so I'm a white belt. This is <laughs> no killer on the ground, and when it comes to striking, I'm way better at that. But now that I'm, I wanted to learn the grappling side as well because I realized, man, you know, I'm a third degree black belt in karate, but if I, I'm on the ground, I'm kind of screwed, and I'm like, I don't like that feeling, man. <laughs> so I really wanted to get into something that helps me train overall, like have a more balanced version of martial mm-hmm. arts. And I think with martial arts, there's always this rivalry, like, that one martial art is better than the other. Like, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is like, if you're going to learn one, that's the one you need to learn. Or karate can beat taekwondo. Or kung fu can beat every other one. It's like, (laughs) no, guys. It's all different, all good skills. You should learn it all. Like, if you have the time and the efficiency, you you should do it. I mean, don't judge each other and be like, mine is better than this kind of deal, so... Um, it's being open-minded and I think that's what martial arts brings. So I think that's very well said. So as a lifelong martial artist who now does have experience in multiple disciplines, what are, like we said before, there's a lot of misunderstandings about martial arts and a lot of myths that people think that aren't true. So are are there a couple of, of myths that you'd like to bust for us? Ones that you've heard a lot and are frankly sick of at this point. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a few that, it makes me roll my eyes every time I hear it. <laughs> so some of the ones I think the, these myths come like from early 80s movies or, you know, <laughs> nice. the crazy, like, mysticism. Like, all these myths were kind of believed up to this point until we had, like, UFC, where we, we saw it on a global scale how martial arts works and what does and doesn't work. So the one thing that I get all the time is like, oh, do you have a one-touch punch death punch yeah, can, can you <laughs> knock somebody out in three seconds <laughs> <laughs> right right and it's like well there's no such thing as a death punch i mean people call it that but there is a lot of what i call mcdojos so like a mcdonald's dojo <laughs> that, yes that teach these dumb things that tell their students really irresponsible stuff like oh if you just pressure point this one guy's you know, temple, you're going to knock him unconscious. And you see some of that stuff. And you know what? Um, One of my pet peeves is Steven Seagal. I'm sorry. I'm going to go down. (laughs) Steven Seagal is one of those frauds, man, that he just like completely goes out of his way. And he's like, uh, gives Aikido a bad name, which is a legitimate martial art. And he like, 
basically in his movies or with his training devils, he'll manipulate them in ways that would not be... You, you wouldn't flip someone over unless you had a willing participant doing the other half for you. So like professional wrestling. Exactly. Right. It's basically professional WWE wrestling. <laughs> you have one participant who's willing to do this stuff, but you take this into a street fight and the guy's going to be like, ah, oh, nah, I'm just going to kick you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> so that... So whenever somebody asks me about that, I'm like, no, no, that's that's complete myth. Uh, all of that is being uh, produced by charlatans who want to convince mm. you that I'm the uh, my martial art has like a deadly touch and my hands need to be registered as weapons. It's like, come on, buddy, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, step well, back a bit. Well, you know what? It, it reminds me of all those get rich quick. You can make thousands of dollars while putting in minimal effort type deals that you see on the internet. And I think. One thing, what you're saying kind of just dovetails with, with the truth that, you know, very few things in life worth getting come that easily. Absolutely. Right. Like, is that if you want to be a legitimate martial artist, that takes decades of blood, sweat and tears and homework. And if you want to be good at anything, it takes a lot of time. Like you're an artist as well. And you've put a lot of time into that to be able to be uh, as good as you are. And for myself as a as a as a sports journalist, my career is just beginning, and I it's fully clear to me I'm going to have to be around this and and keep practicing, keep trying, keep learning, before I can I can get better. So I think that the mentality of trying to get rich quick or get better at this or do something meaningful without putting in much effort is it's very enticing to human nature, but it's not true in martial arts or in life. Absolutely, and there's like that. I don't know what you call it, like a father figure type, uh, put on a pedestal type person in martial arts where you have a teacher and you have downtrodden people that maybe are getting bullied or looking to be stronger and like make themselves more confident. And those people take advantage of that, trying to be like a god to them. And so that culture uh, in martial arts of, you know, whatever your sensei says goes and is god, the word of god, is just bad you can't treat it like that you you have to understand that everyone's human and you got to basically uh make sure that you're not being fooled or like mm. with all these charlatans well, wait wait hold on a second do you mean to tell me then that the dragon ball series of anime is not a realistic <laughs> representation of the high end of martial arts <laughs> i wish i could go super sane but that ain't <laughs> happening anytime soon what? My whole life is a lie now. <laughs> so you, so you're saying is that ju like just because you do an Asian martial art doesn't mean you can generate energy blasts using your life force. Man, that would make martial arts like one of the craziest sports out there. Everyone would want to watch that, and unfortunately, it's not. Yes. Not, not the case. I mean, like I, I feel <laughs> UFC would have take a distinctly Quidditch flavor to it if that were <laughs> if that were the case, but. Uh, obviously, I'm being incredibly facetious here. I was also just going to say in something that you mentioned earlier, the 80s movies and stuff. Uh, this is a little bit more recent than 80s, but I watched It Man uh, oh, yeah. a few weeks ago with love my it, family. Man. It's a great series of movies. Like, I love Donnie Yen, and because my family and I speak Chinese, we're able to watch it in Mandarin, which make, made it feel fairly uh, authentic. Having said that, folks... You can't kick someone 20 feet through the air effortlessly, <laughs> but for them to not act, then just like get up and not actually having taken a substantial amount of uh, of damage. Like Wing Chun doesn't work like that in real life. You, right. Man, you guys are like ruining like my whole perception of reality. Right <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know what? George St. Pierre has talked about it. Like 
there's actually differences between doing actual martial arts, like a traditional martial art, then mixed martial arts, and then there's performance martial arts. Mm-hmm. And that can be completely different. Like George St. Pierre, uh, I don't know if you guys watched the, what is it, Captain America? America? Ah, yes, the... Batrock the Leaper. Yes, exactly. Uh, a small but very fun role. <laughs> exactly, and he played, he played that, and he said during his performance of the film that he had to learn a whole bunch of different things that weren't actually in traditional martial arts and it's just as much as hard and difficult or very acrobatic so it could be considered a martial arts in itself you know Mm -hmm. doing the performance arts and that i think that applies to other forms of just stunts and performance in general because i i have a good friend uh who is a lifelong parkour athlete he loves parkour and obviously parkour is a huge part of movie stunts particularly hand-to-hand combat scenes and it is often paired with martial arts fights to give you know the appeal and the image of of those fight scenes that we all probably have seen and enjoy but there have been certain times where for example in the movie avengers age of ultron captain america and the avengers are in battle against ultron's army of drones and in one of the group shots captain america jumps in the air and he does some sort of my friend Zach McIver knows what this move is called. The move is called. I don't, but he he jumps in the air and essentially does what resembles like a horizontal flip barrel roll to to evade an attack. And Zach, as a as a parkour guy, is like, no, there's no reason to do that. <laughs> there, that was literally just cool. That served no purpose in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And that lots of those things are just for fun too. And like, I love the man movies and mm. Donnie Yen. To his credit, is a legit he martial definitely artist. definitely is. <laughs> legit. And, he, like, apparently he beats up his partners in the movies. Like, legit, they come home with bruises. So the dude, he can, he's not like Steven Seagal. He can actually do yes. martial arts. So. Yeah, so going off that, I think another misconception that a lot of people have is that the biggest, strongest, toughest looking men in a room are always the best fighters or the best martial artists. And... I think you know as well as I that that is not true. That yes, you have guys like Francis and Ganu every once in a while who combine the body of an NFL defensive end with legitimate fighting skill and natural fighting talent. But many, many times that's not the case. And so, can you again, like you're you don't exactly look like a CrossFit athlete, <laughs> no. right, Jacinta? But you. Yeah. But you are a lifelong martial artist, so so what would you have to say about about that myth? The whole like, oh, like if he's big and he's got big muscles, he must be a good fighter, because that's oftentimes not actually true. Right. So having bis- big muscles is an advantage, just like being speedy is an advantage. But that doesn't automatically make you a good fighter. Um, I think when it comes to any sort of martial arts experience, if there's an experience gap between somebody who's a martial artist and an untrained person you're going to have an advantage over being able to do certain techniques how you respond to situations a lot of big guys will respond and say like rely on their size for intimidation factors to start thing so I'll, with a disclaimer whenever you get into martial arts it's all about self-defense you never any good teacher or sensei will tell you you are never supposed to initiate the attack it's mm-hmm. all about defending yourself and so Unless you have a very bad student or a very bad teacher who's encouraging that, like uh, on Cobra Kai or something like that, <laughs> you guys watch that, um, you shouldn't get someone with experience trying to attack or bully someone else. So when it comes to martial arts, there's techniques that can apply that use actual physics, like leverage. You So it doesn't matter how big you are, everyone has carotid arteries, and if you squeeze those 
buggers for like a few seconds, you're there. Everyone's going out cold. So when it comes to martial arts, there's techniques that can be applied, and even timing wise, like I. Sometimes you see those videos on Instagram. They got a, a big guy, six feet. He looks like he's 230 pounds. And then you got a trained athlete, you know, a trained martial artist that comes in there. And the guy, big guy does a lazy big swing, a nice big looping punch. And all of a sudden, the athlete's like, he just steps back. He knows what's coming. He can see, he can dodge around it. And then he throws a hook um, to the, the chin, you know. And then he... Because most of the people who do fight and the big guys, they've never taken a punch. Trust me, taking a punch sucks. And when you you don't know how to deal with when you get you know partial loss of consciousness or get dizzy and all of a sudden you're falling over or you get these untrained people do the wrong thing and get even madder. So what they do is they throw more punches. And a, a trained martial artist will either disengage. You should run away if you can disengage. Like whole situation with talking, or you, that's a hundred percent what you do. You should never use it. It's always a last resort. But they'll come back and like you get mad. They get mad and you start punching, and all of a sudden the trained person can put you out cold, put you in a choke, which is safe enough to restrain the person. I think most people consider if he's a big guy, he's faster, stronger, whatever. Well, if you don't have experience, you've never dealt with yeah. dealt with those situations. Yeah. <laughs> I would for a hundred percent take the hundred and thirty pound or forty pound yeah. martial artist over the two hundred and twenty uh, college frat boy. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think last year I, I forget who uh, unfortunately, but I saw this video on Twitter of a college football player, and I think he was an offensive lineman too. So he was a big man trying to pick a fight with a guy who has trained MMA for a decade, oh, and yes. he wouldn't back off. <laughs> and the MMA guy floored him almost immediately with a wrestling technique yeah. and proceeded to dominate and control him for the rest of that cell phone video. Yeah. And it just speaks to your point. Absolutely. And I think with anything, martial artists have techniques that can subdue without doing a whole bunch of damage. So it doesn't, you don't necessarily need to knock out a guy, right? You can go around, t- pin him to the ground. Like lots of wrestlers have pinning moves that they can do against larger guys. So you just, with that experience, there's such a gap. Now, granted, if there is some experience there, the weight does make a difference. Yes, for sure. Um, so let's not take into account like, oh, a trained guy, a big guy will never hurt me. There's always a chance of yeah. something going wrong and you catching, getting clipped by a punch or something like that. But when you're doing that, there is an advantage, and the big guy doesn't always win. Right, and, and and to your point, sometimes it is a lot harder for smaller people to knock out bigger people, particularly if the bigger person is accustomed to taking punches or, or is, exactly. is physically stronger or tougher. And I think another thing that dovetails with what we've been talking about, about uh, <clears throat> excuse me, about movie fighting and performance versus reality is, uh, I'm going to go back to Marvel Black Widow has a tendency to one-punch guys that are like two and a half times their weight and throw yeah. these ridiculous lists. That's silly. Head scissor takedowns and, you, and stuff like that. Are you that. telling me that that's not 100% realistic? No. Like, as much as we love girl power here on this <laughs> podcast, it's not You're it's right. not realistic. And the point I was trying to make was that I think that movies have also gone too far the other way sometimes. And again, if, it, if it's for performance, and particularly if it's a superhero thing, like Black Widow isn't exactly supposed to be a normal person. So uh, yeah, it's, exactly. it's fine. But I think there are also lots of movies where you've got these like 130, 140 pound 
women who are, you know, they're secret agents or they're fighters or whatever, and they're, like, one-punching 220-pound <laughs> guys right. because those guys are the, the goons and the henchmen of the enemy, and so they're supposed right. to go down easy, and that's not realistic either. No, no, I, not at all. And, like, being a woman myself, I would tell any woman who wants self-defense advice, talk first, be alert, be aware of your surroundings. The more aware you are of the potential for a bad situation, the more likely you are to get out of that situation and not have to use those skills and not roll the dice with somebody on the street that may be bigger, stronger, or other situations. Right, like and that. you don't know their background, right? Maybe yeah. maybe this guy's a boxer, right? right? So he knows how to take a hit, but he's wanting to pick on you, and if that's the case, you really don't want to mess with him or yeah. something like that. Try to diffuse the situation with talking first, and then try to get away from it. That's mm -hmm. the most important part. So, so what I'm hearing is that a lot of self-defense, it's like, again, it's not in movies and shows where you, like, you floor the person, and you <laughs> knock them out, and you basically flex on them. A lot of the times, it's it's... If it does get physical, it's one move to, to, to get space, and then if you run if you can run away, you do that. Yeah. Also, if all they want is your wallet or your phone, give it to them. Absolutely. You can replace a wallet. You cannot replace your life. So the most important thing you should do is give them what they want, you know, unless it's like something physical that they're trying to take from you, then replace that whatever thing key car you know whatever police report it people fantasize about being that one hero who jumps yeah. in and saves the life or saves their own life by beating up this huge man that my friends is the worst case scenario and that's the last place you want to be even me a trained martial artist of you know i did karate for 14 years jujitsu for two you know you don't want to do that <laughs> i'm scared of that situation so you should be too yeah yeah i think i think that makes a lot of sense and uh, tyson mm -hmm. i want to get your opinion because i mean you you are a big guy and i mean like it's you're not like it's not like you've been like getting into street fights since you were 10 years old or anything like that but you know you are a big guy you're also a lifelong hockey player basketball player lifelong athlete so you know from the perspective of a big guy like mm -hmm. In this conversation, like, do you have any, any thoughts, experiences that you think you might want to share? I think, like, during my life and growing up is that all, people always naturally assumed that I could fight well because I was big. Right. And they always said, oh, yeah, you must, like, always bench, like, 300 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just not realistic. Right. So, like... Yeah, that understanding of, like, size does not mean that you're good at fighting or that you're skillful in any particular way. I can attest to that because I'm not. <laughs> you know, I took, like, karate for a couple of weeks and learned the bare basics. <laughs> yeah. Total white belt right here. <laughs> Total white belt. That's all right. <laughs> so, like, you know, that's just my personal mm -hmm. experience. I, I know that I don't have fighting skills yeah and if i was ever in a situation where i could run away i know that i would yes because it's just too much of a, a risk and it's a dangerous situation that i know that i'm not capable of handling yeah and i think it, it is very important to 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 be wise to to be aware of of what your situation is and respond accordingly i think that i think that a lot of times what not everyone knows is that assailants See, the thing is, the reason why they call them predators is because they're looking for easy prey, 100%. not a fight. 100%. And so I think particularly for for females, also or smaller smaller males like mm -hmm. like myself, I've read a uh, I've read articles and I've I've heard from people like for example my friend uh, my friend AJ 
uh, who he, he has fought a lot before. He is a trained boxer wrestler, and he grew up in a rough neighborhood. So he has, unfortunately, been in a lot of street fights and stuff. It's just that people don't realize how much not putting headphones in. Can, can can help you when you're walking alone yep. at night that if you like even if you're a small 110 pound woman who doesn't fight doesn't play sports doesn't bench right. anything but if you have to walk around walk alone at night and you are you're obviously aware of your surroundings you're not looking at your phone you're looking around and you look like someone who is going to yell for help or make a big deal right. uh, you know if someone tries to mess with you that actually deters a lot of people who might actually try to take liberties with you because what they're looking for is someone that they think that they can pick on at will and someone who will not right someone who will not uh will not only not hurt them back, but will not make it inconvenient or risky for them to commit a crime on them. Absolutely. When it comes to any sort of criminal activity, they're looking for the weakest person. And people, I see it all the time nowadays, like they're on the train, they're on their phone, just playing a video game or whatever, or they got their headphones in, not paying attention to where they are. I mean, those are the types of people that are going to get attacked on. And let's not get confused here. This can happen in broad daylight. There was just attacks of uh, a few months ago here in Calgary, women on the street in the middle of the day, wow. afternoon, were getting attacked um, by this creep who was literally, you know, trying to do sexual assault things on them. Mm. So you be aware. And I, I mean, it, let's don't be paranoid. I, I always <laughs> I always try to tell people like, oh well, should I be looking everywhere I go and blah blah blah. I'm like, no, no. It's just being somewhat conscious of your surroundings. And right. So right. So you don't have to break Canadian gun laws and carry two AK-47s wherever <laughs> you go. <laughs> right. And I mean, like, there's people who get distracted too. Like, if you have i've heard of women who are carrying their babies and they got groceries in one hand like that makes you look vulnerable so if you can like have a babysitter come or make sure yeah. you're checking around your vehicle there's been lots of, it's actually scary human trafficking cases where, oh it's terrifying um you know women get picked out right while they're putting groceries in their car type deal and that's just something that you just got to be aware and don't be by yourself if you're anytime you have any sneaking suspicion that you feel uncomfortable just call security, get them to escort you to your car. Mm -hmm. Like most people are pretty considerate and will do that for you. Yeah. Um, ask for help. I do it all the time, even though like I get people all the time who ask, say, well, just since you're a trained martial arts uh, artist, like why, why do you want me to walk you to your car? I'm like, because safety in numbers. Yeah. You don't look like a victim if you're by yourself. You know, you walk me to the, my car, I'll drive you back to your car type deal yeah uh, it's mm -hmm. all about being proactive in those situations and another thing that i wanted to mention is lots of times with these criminals you don't know if they have a weapon and yes. bringing a weapon into the situation escalates it so much and is very scary uh it's one thing to get attacked fist punch you know type deal strength wise it's another thing bringing a weapon into stuff and so people ask me well why wouldn't you just carry a knife on you or why wouldn't you carry a gun i'm like well being a female what if I get overpowered by one of those bigger guys and I just brought a knife into the fight and now that guy has a knife? Yeah. What is happening now? I could die rather than maybe just be being beat, you know, pretty badly. So yeah. it, it's, it's really a balance and, you know, these things, some of them will deter a criminal from actually doing something if you bring a knife, but I don't want to risk bringing an extra level of escalation escalation into a fight so 
if you can talk your way out of it and run, do that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think as someone who actually, like, I, I'm I'm going to live in the in the States. I'm going back to Indianapolis. Uh, I've made a few good friends there, and one of them is a, he's a lifelong gun owner, and so is his family. And I'm excited to go to the range with him and a few other folks and just to check it out. And I've actually considered the idea of becoming a gun owner because if I'm legally entitled to in the States, mm-hmm. you know, and I am a smaller male, like... You know, sure, that might have its benefits, but the one thing that I'm telling myself is I'm not ever going to buy a gun unless I'm confident that I will put in the time and money to train with it at least semi-regularly. Because if you have a gun and you don't really know how to use it and you haven't physically and mentally prepared for oh this is a bad situation right. if this comes into play what's going to happen you're a, you're going to do as much good as a child with a hand grenade absolutely and most fights end in like less than five minutes i mean that's long that's a yeah. long end of a fight you're getting a 30 seconds to a minute type fight here and are you going to be able to fumble around in your pocket and maybe pull out a gun if you're not regularly exactly. using it <laughs> no, you're not and the, all of a sudden they see that you you have a gun, they're coming towards you yes. and they're going to be now aggressive. You could have had a situation where you talked your way out of it, mm-hmm. gave them your money, stuff like that, but now you've just escalated and they're mad because they realize their life's on the line and yeah. you brought a gun into the situation. Right, just essentially it seems like what you're saying is that right, just like when you corner an animal, it becomes far more aggressive. Oh, yeah. if, you're, if you escalate with a weapon or if you make someone else feel threatened, you could get into a really bad situation that could otherwise have been avoided. Absolutely. And people always ask me, what am I more afraid of, a gun or a knife? And I always say knife. Uh, people are surprised by that because in 30 seconds with with a knife, they could cut me 12 or 15 times in a really bad artery and I bleed out. Yeah. With a gun, fumble around, get it out, maybe get one or two shots before they're moving. With a knife, they pull it out, they can run at you before you get that knife in front of them. I mean, the gun, if you want to self-defense yourself. So, like, with a knife, you got to be extremely careful. And there's a misconception that, oh, well, I can just kick the knife out of their hand. Or like... You can be Snake Eyes or Black <laughs> Widow, and you can, like, you know, like, you can one move parry and break their arm and take the knife from them. And, like, the reality is, unless you're literally like a Navy SEAL or a Spetsnaz agent or some kind, it's like something like that. That's not realistic. Absolutely. And be prepared to be cut. And even if you are a Navy SEAL, they know they're going to get cut in that situation. Yeah. The, with a knife, you're literally just trying to protect your vital organs. Yes. Be, and mm-hmm. get out of there because otherwise <laughs> you're done and there's not much you can do with it. So yeah, knives are scary. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, so, uh, if I can bring a little inter- internet slang into this situation, TLDR or too long semicolon did, did, didn't read. Uh, don't be a hero. That's yes. the cold notes, Cole's notes here. Don't be a hero. And, and I think that at the end of the day, you have to do something like martial arts for the right reason. Self-defense is a good reason, but like you said, you have to understand what self-defense actually is and yeah. that it's it's not about flexing on somebody that you don't like and it's not about saving someone and making the news. It is about protecting your life and limb if you really have to but if you don't have to go there then just don't absolutely that's the main message ah yeah totally so now now i think this would be a good time to move on to another topic that i want that i want to discuss and we want to discuss on this show and that is weight cutting something a lot of people who don't know about mixed martial arts and and boxing and combat sports they don't really know that this happens. Like for example, I was talking to I was talking to a friend of mine at camp a couple years ago and we were just you know, we were just talking about sparring and fighting, like just just as a lighthearted conversation and, and I you know, it was 
UFC came up, and she knows that I that I watch that that watch that, and yeah, I, I said, okay, well, Allison, like if you if you were to become a, a a mixed martial artist, you would fight in the featherweight division because that, by the way, is a 145 pound limit. But my friend is is five eight and about 160. She's she's very athletic, and she's like, bruh, you're like, you've got me like you're you're mis you're underestimating me by by a period of time and you're like no 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 if you were a fighter you cut the 15 pounds because there is no women's lightweight division where you walk around right. at 155 pounds and she was very surprised to hear that and i think i think that's understandable because if you're not a a mixed martial arts fan or a boxing fan you would there wouldn't really be any reason for you to understand how weight classes work and the problem with that though jacinta is that there's a lot of guys who, over the decades, have a habit of cutting a significant amount of weight, 20 or more pounds, to get down to a weight class that they're not naturally at or they need to put a lot of effort into making. The reason they do this is to maximize their physical height and length and overall size advantages yeah. against people that are purportedly their size. The problem is, like I said, this can get very, very dramatic like for instance uh there's a ufc fighter named davison figueredo the former ufc flyweight champion who recently lost his belt to the uh, mexican phenom brandon moreno and it was a really good two fights but the flyweight division has a 125 pound limit which first of all is tiny for most so men tiny. like <laughs> i'm 5'3 and i walk around 150 pounds yeah. and you know that that's tiny and like even for a lot of women like that's that's pretty small that's right. on the small side and davison figueredo is about five six five seven he walks around at 165 pounds at the beginning of training camp he gets down to 152 pounds but he needs to get on that scale and make 125 to fight and that's just one of many examples i could bring out of just insane weight cutting and i what we want to talk about now is that as common as this is it's not good for fighters health Absolutely. And I, coming from a neuroscience background, I'll kind of touch on the aspects of how weight cutting, cutting to, can actually affect your brain health and performance in actual a athletics. So I just a, a little bit of a disclaimer. My background isn't in concussions, weight cutting, that kind of neuroscience. I, my, I did my master's on like essential tremor and looking at how surgery can help treat essential uh, tremor. Uh, so I'm not, by no means I'm not an expert, but I have some experience uh, talking about some of this stuff. So basically the advent of weight cutting kind of got popularized by collegiate wrestling, I believe. And so, like David said, the whole advantage was to basically have bigger guys compete in smaller divisions and against smaller guys who they would weight cut down 20, like all the way down to their weigh in time. And then they would have 24 hours or a couple hours to refuel up and then drink a ton of water and basically swell up like a balloon. Exactly. Exactly. And so at the time of their actual fight or their wrestling match, that guy who weight cut would be like 10, 20 pounds heavier than the other guy, which obviously is a clear advantage, especially when you're both trained and you're at the, around the same level, weight makes a big difference. And the problem with this is that the culture caught on where they're like, well, if that guy's weight cutting, we all need to weight cut. And so lots of these teenage um, wrestlers and collegiate wrestlers were all weight cutting huge amounts of weight, 10, 20, 30 pounds just to make all the limit. But 
you're realizing now that because everyone's doing it, it's not really giving a weight advantage anymore because you don't have the smaller guys in those divisions. The smaller guys are cutting to be even in a smaller division. So what you were getting is just serious dehydration from all these athletes that were competing at around the same size limit with the same sized guys. So what ended up happening before they changed this in wrestling is that there was a couple kids that lost too much weight too rapidly and died. Mm -hmm. And so they had to take a meeting and they had to basically ban weight cutting. And although that they have banned weight cutting in the wrestling, wrestling world, it's still heavily prevalent in boxing, mixed martial arts, kickboxing, kickboxing, all these other martial arts try to do it to get the advantage. And so Sometimes they do get five or ten pounds on the other guy, but lots of the times they're around the same weight limit. So it seems counterintuitive to me to continue this outdated practice for many reasons, and that's health reasons in general. So um, one of the craziest things is that with MMA, there when you cut a certain amount, a percentage of weight in like let's say a week, you can become get a whole bunch of different other symptoms. So w- there basically is a hypothesis that with cutting weight, you decrease the overall amount of water availability within your body, which makes your blood uh, thicker or and other fluids in your body. So from a brain perspective, there's something called CSF, which is cerebral spinal fluid, and that co- coats basically your entire brain and your spine and is the volume of it can fluctuate depending on your hydration levels. Hmm. And so with that, what you have is your brain is coated in this jelly that helps keep it in place. And when you dehydrate yourself, the hypothesis is, is basically your CSF is gets lower and you, um, because if there's not enough water in your body, it's, there's not enough cushioning that CFF, CSF provides cushioning in your brain. And so what they've looked at with, fighters who weight cut is that they have this severe dehydration and that there's emerging evidence. Mm. And I have a whole bunch of references here that I actually, I'll send to you, David, if anyone wants to read about them in some of these new papers, uh, where they're finding that dehydrated fighters suffer a a greater proportion of, uh, concussions Mm. and are more likely to basically develop like TBIs. And so, traumatic brain injuries. Yeah, tra- traumatic brain injuries. And so besides cushioning the brain, so when you get a concussion, you'll have the brain rock against one side of the skull from an impact or something like that. But most people don't under- don't know that concussions can happen not just because you have a blow to the head. Accelerating and decelerating forces can actually call uh, cause damage to the brain that is TBI. Like a car accident. Yes, whiplash, even shock waves like mine explosions can cause your brain to shift inside. And so what another form of damage that causes concussion is a shearing motion on the brain that you have a whole bunch of what are called neurons and little cells in the brain that comp- that basically comprise your whole brain. When those cells, those cells are super delicate. And so when you're, you get a shock wave or you get whiplash or something like that, they can twist and turn in the brain and actually cause damage to what's called um, a wrapping around, like it's axon. So that's basically think of like 
I don't know, a corn dog and how a corn dog has a wrapping around it. And so when you basically, you have myelin and then the inside is the axonal area, you can shear it like paper and you you can create create micro fractions in those areas that are basically supposed to send signals, like tell you, uh, create a memory or, you know, move your hand and it can shear those areas, which cause concussion-like symptoms. So CSF, the fluid in your brain, also helps to be uh, like a lubricant for those axons as well. The more dehydrated you get, the less cushioning you have for that as well. So not only does your brain not have more cushioning to hit the sides of the wall of your skull, but you also have these forces that normally provide, you know, viscosity to these axons also shearing. So you can get more than one symptom of a concussion from that. Mm. And it's super dangerous when you're looking at all these different fighters who participate in these um, weight cutting like practices. It's you're being at a higher percentage of possibility that you'll have worse concussion symptoms, that you will have a concussion at all. Some of these fluids need to be protected in your brain, right? Mm. So dehydrating before then, is like really dangerous for not only your health like with the with weight cutting you can get develop eating disorders and stuff like that to help cut all that weight but it can also be bad for your brain and people don't understand that so yeah and tyson we know that concussions are some of the worst injuries that you can get as athletes and they can have very very lasting effects unpredictable effects as well yeah like long-term effects for concussions can be like partial blindness, partial vision impairment for long periods of time. It's a very dangerous uh, thing to be doing, especially considering that, like you mentioned, the risk is way higher than the reward. Right. Because everybody now is more or less the same size within the same weight class. So the need for weight cutting is not nearly as, as as much as it is, or at least as it was early on in the day. So absolutely. Yeah. Like the way that I see it is just, it's so dangerous to be, you know, weight cutting serious amounts of weight before a fight so that it could hinder long-term effects. Um, there was a video that went viral. I'm fairly certain that you saw it of a fighter who had gone through a serious weight cutting regimen. Uh, and he was trying to get onto the scale and he like needed to be helped up by his like his friends and the trainers that were there because right. he couldn't physically hold himself right. up. Yeah, that's so terrible. And that's that's not even necessarily the brain too. There's also other detriments to your body with weight cutting. Like so basically your muscles have what is called glycogen. They need glycogen or a type of food. It's basically sugar and they eat that sugar to make sure you are ready to go. You can perform fast anything basically your mm-hmm. muscles need food to eat and this glycogen is tied to the amount of hydration that you get in your body so when you de basically dehydrate yourself your muscles have less food to actually eat on and so this can if you cut too much in a too short of period of time you're giving your muscles less to eat so when you get in that octagon and you get in there you're going to feel a perceived higher amount of fatigue and you're not going to be able to have that longer endurance rate for using those different types of muscles so it's like a barbaric practice because you're not there's no um evidence of it giving you a clear advantage over anyone because everyone's weight cutting but you 
basically impacting your performance. And I mean, it's not found at all weight, uh, weight cut limits, but if you do like, let's say 20 or 30 pounds in like a week, you get severe, severe, uh, glycogen decreases and deficiencies, deficiencies basically mm-hmm. with your muscles. Yeah. Yeah. That's just super scary and super dangerous. I mean, I, going back to concussions for, uh, for a moment before I move on with my point, uh, one, one case that came to my mind is uh, former NHL star Rick Nash, who suffered at least three concussions over the course of his playing career. But what ended up happening is that on January 11th, 2019, he, he announced his retirement from prep for, 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 sorry, from professional hockey. But a large reason why he had to do that, he was only 34 years old, and definitely a lot of players, if they're lucky, especially if they're talented, like Nash was, they're able to play into their their late 30s if their right. bodies hold up. But it was a lot of it was due to unresolved concu- symptoms from a concussion sustained in the March of 2018, and that's just one example of how even if you recover from it at first, it can have serious long-term effects, and it could prematurely end your career. Like no matter what sport you're playing, it could prematurely end your career. Uh, and even if it doesn't, it could make you a lot less effective of, a, of an athlete than you once were because now your body has limits on it that it that they did not before. Absolutely. Dehydration and concussions can do multiple things. They can also decrease your cognitive speed, your reaction time. Those are all really important things for making decisions on in a fight, like whether I'm going to punch or not or seeing a punch coming at you. Yeah. Uh, why would you want to give that yourself that disadvantage? And that's where these committees need to come and step in and tell everyone weight cutting's done. Like ever ban it from it because I think it's just causing uh, too much risk for these fighters who are all doing it at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point, I've watched a lot of UFC, and you know, there's sometimes you watch certain knockouts, and it's like. You know, that guy, his hands were up, he was looking at his opponent when he got punched in the face, but for some reason he wasn't able to defend against that attack, and he got dropped, and he lost the fight. Whereas other fighters, like particularly the really skilled ones like George St. Pierre back in the day, very few people do this better than Israel Adesanya, is that they see everything coming, and they're able to make... You know, you know, it's not about just, oh, I'm going to do a very dramatic dodge and <laughs> this punch is going to miss me like the Matrix. Like, a lot of the times in, in, in a combat sport, it's about a split second, I'm going to raise my hand a, a, a two centimeters so that I block that punch instead of letting it land. And much to your point, if you are drained from a weight cut, you're not going to be able to make these decisions quite as fast as you need to. And as we all know in a fight, it is a split second that could be the difference between victory and defeat. Absolutely. And with all this weight cutting stuff, not only does it affect your cognitive performance, you, you're at risk for stroke. Like if you don't have um, enough water in your blood, uh, you can. there's a higher risk. It's been found to develop heart, de- heart disease, uh, the ability if it's too like, you basically clog up your engine in your brain, mm. right? You can develop clots in there that develop into a stroke. Like this is over a long period of time of continuous weight cutting. It's just bad overall for your brain health in general. And finally, if if you folks out there don't don't believe us, there are actually multiple examples in recent memory of fighters who became significantly better and more competitive in the UFC after they moved up a weight class. Yeah. And I'll throw some examples at you, like Gilbert Burns, for instance. He used to fight at lightweight, which was 155 pounds. Uh, but as a 5'10 man, he was 
shall we say he's not naturally 155 pounds. He's got some significant breadth to him. He's he's muscular and strong. He's in very good shape. And when he was a lightweight fighter, he he lost several key fights where he got knocked out, he got cracked, and he was not durable enough to. He's either was he was a combination of he wasn't durable enough to withstand those shots, or like you said, he maybe was a little bit slow on the reads and he was not able to react in time to defend properly. Then he moved up a weight class finally to 170 pounds, welterweight, and most recently challenged Kamaru Usman for the welterweight title after dominating uh, a number of opponents in the row. Uh, another example is, uh, and I, I laugh whenever I think about this guy making middleweight, but Tiago Santos <laughs> is a massive man. He's uh, as Brazilian kickboxer. Fun fact, he's actually used to be a former army paratrooper, which is really cool. And he's basically gotten Mjolnir tattooed on his chest. So <laughs> he's an insanely... He, that guy, I'm, I'm glad that guy uh, is in the UFC, but he's 6'2", used to cut down to 185 pounds, which if you Google a picture of him and his level of muscle mass... It was frankly ridiculous that he was even able to make it down to 185 pounds. But again, it was not a good long-term career decision for him. He got he was less durable. He was he was just less adaptive a fighter overall. And after he got knocked out by another fighter named David Branch, who is a good fighter but not an elite striker, he decided I have I'm going to move up to light heavyweight, 205 pounds. And now he's a top contender in the light heavyweight division, and he's gone five hard rounds with John Jones, one of the most talented mixed martial artists of all time. Uh, Anthony Smith is another example of a fighter who's much better after he moved up as well. So not only is it it is uh, not only is it damaging uh, on a fighter's health, but I think we're seeing more and more examples of weight cutting being anti-competitive. Right. And whatever advantage you gain in reach or length or size you are losing that in terms of durability and reaction speed and brain function. And all of those, those things are, are much more important that, to the success of a fighter than raw measurables alone. Absolutely. And I think it's, this is something that's super interesting that people, I think, take advantage of. People usually think that equipment means less injury and equipment means like less con concussions. It, it can actually make it worse. And so with um, they just came out with, it's not a study, but there was like results from the association of the ringside physicians. And I got this from uh, combat sports law, Eric, uh, McGrocken. I follow him on Twitter and super interesting guy. He posts some really cool stuff. And basically at the conference, there was this doctor, Dr. Don Muzi, who basically recorded one, 131 bouts and like 216 athletes in both MMA boxing and bare knuckle boxing where they actually don't fight with any gloves and what they actually found was that there was in bare knuckle boxing there was higher facial lacerations so basically cut open on the face um, bruising bleeding stuff like that but lower concussion rates and lower hand fractures which seems weird right interesting because, yeah because you would think they're not wearing gloves you think they would have like less more hand fractures they're punching bigger surfaces and without protection and they actually found that a lot of these fights will end up being cut early because the, there's too much bleeding on the face or they get cut in a, a bad area that's like dangerous to their eye and stuff like that and so it's actually safer to do bare knuckle boxing that's what the this evidence so far suggests than doing mma or boxing and i know that uh jorge masvidal started that uh bare knuckle 
MMA promotion, hmm. and the majority of those fights didn't end up with KOs. They ended up with submissions, which is like much safer fa- for athletes concussion-wise and stuff yes. like that. Yeah, no, I think I think uh, much more research will be needed before we have a definitive look on Absolutely. bare knuckle versus small MMA gloves versus the big boxing gloves. Yeah. But but it, it is it is very interesting to think how you know how how counterintuitive that can be. And Tyson, you know, I think that the same thing can apply in 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 something like football versus rugby. You think rugby players take more damage because they're not wearing any gear, but in truth, in football, the gear can actually make it worse because not only is it additional mass onto what oftentimes are very big men to begin with, but they're also hard surfaces to strike with. Now, instead of just tackling someone in a jersey and you're in a jersey and bringing them down, you now have a hard shoulder pad to throw straight into their chest or their lower body or their abdomen when you're making a tackle. And yes, it is protective. Um, it is protective, but at the same time, it can actually do more damage because it, it protects the hitter so you can hit again, but it's harder on the recipient because it's more mass and it's a harder surface. Yeah, like even with hockey equipment as well, like elbow pads back in the day, like in the 80s, used to be like a piece of foam. <laughs> and now they're like high tech, lightweight, and like very hard exoskeleton type of material. Yeah. So if you clip an elbow, like some like you, somebody does an elbow to the face, like almost guarantee there's going to be a concussion-like symptom appear. And then you're going to be going through concussion protocol. It doesn't always necessarily mean that you're going to have a concussion. But elbows to the head is something that the NHL has absolutely been trying to get out of the NHL, like out of the game, because it's so dangerous. And that's a, an area where the equipment has gotten a lot safer in protecting the person's elbows, but also has become a lot more dangerous in the event of an elbowing penalty or, or, or a situation where somebody gets hit in the head. Yeah, I think most people's understanding of equipment is to help you protect hurting someone else but it's more to protect you and from when wearing gloves it's to protect your knuckles right stuff like that not prevent concussions it actually lets you hit harder and more so that increases like a hypothesis i mean most of what i'm talking about today is preliminary analysis on Mm -hmm. lots of research and science is always changing this doesn't mean that what i'm saying today is definitive sign up for bare knuckle fighting championship today (laughs) just kidding don't (laughs) definitely not and like there needs to be more studies on all of this kind of stuff but it's good that they're looking into Mm -hmm. how we can prevent concussions and seeing you know counterintuitive data that might be interesting to look at so for sure and i think for our, our last topic today i did want to talk about mma itself because it is it's a niche sport it's not one we're going to talk about too much on this podcast going forward, but it is also, like I said before, a very misunderstood sport. And I want to open this with a disclaimer that, you know what, two people fighting in a cage, it's okay if that's just not your thing, that's not your cup of tea. It's definitely not for everyone. And so for the people out there who have various reasons or convictions why they would not watch or would not enjoy mixed martial arts and boxing and kickboxing, I think that's entirely I think that's entirely valid, and I, I, for one, definitely respect that. Having said so, I also think that some of the stigma around MMA does come from misconceptions, namely that MMA is about two dumb men, dumb, aggressive, and rude men, getting in an octagon and performing rock'em sock'em robots until somebody is knocked unconscious. And that's, that's not the case. Two things. First of all, 
yeah, there are there are MMA fighters who are narcissistic and arrogant and lawbreakers, but that's true in every sport. There are good guys and bad guys in every sport. There are divas and class acts in, you know, in every sport. Like Stephen Wonderboy Thompson is one of the nicest people on the continent, yeah. despite the fact that he is a UFC welterweight contender. Like it just, and he really uses martial arts as a positive force in his life and something that he coaches kids, he coaches adults, he he competes to provide for himself and his family and. And you know what? So 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 one thing that I think people, uh, non-fight fans, don't get to see is the the very unique sight of watching two trained fighters try to finish each other for three rounds or sometimes five, and then afterwards genuinely hugging each other, congratulating each other, the loser congratulating the winner, and being every bit at it being every bit as heartfelt as a football huddle or a hockey handshake after a playoff series. So I think that that's a really special part of the sport of MMA. And you're like, how can you literally fight somebody and then actually wish them the best? But oftentimes it happens. Yeah, absolutely. And like in every sport, there's bad, bad blood between most. But the traditional form of martial arts has always taught uh, things like humility, respect, understanding for others. And that carries on I think through mixed martial arts as well uh with most of the athletes it's you have a mutual respect for the other person that's going in there I mean if you're not scared to get punched you're a psychopath <laughs> so everyone's going like in even there. George St. Pierre UFC Hall of Famer Terrified. has it he he admits that he, I was scared to get punched I didn't like that yeah <laughs> every time I mean getting punched in the face is no fun or kicked like when it comes down to martial arts there's a respect because that on the other side of the cage, that person's going through most of those feelings as well. And this is a sport. They're going in there and putting on entertainment for the rest of us. And it's at a high level that, you know, you have to respect how much work that these athletes put in there. Some of them are sleeping in their cars just to train at the lower level because unfortunately there's mm -hmm. not a lot of fighter pay around it. And uh, so these people are training, you know, up to like eight, nine times a week. It's crazy. So it's not just, they're just as much athletes as any of the other sports. It's just that they do fighting mm -hmm. and most people aren't exposed to that or don't consider yeah. it a sport right now. You know, I think another good example is Davison Figueredo after he lost to Brandon Moreno. Now, for those of you who don't know, Davison Figueredo's fight name is Dustageha, which translates into God of War, uh, <laughs> and it, and awesome. he fights like it too. Like he yeah. is one of the very few flyweight fighters that have legitimate one punch knockout power. It's very rare at that size, and in all of his pre-fight stuff, he gets in his opponent's face and he says things like, "I'm gonna break this guy. I I I'm thinking about ripping his head off with my hands." That's the kind of fighter he is. He seems extremely aggressive, and you would would you know maybe you would stereotype him as a thug or or a violent narcissist or anything like that. Except when he got dominated and finished by Brandon Moreno in his last uh, in his last fight, he literally went over to Brandon and he not only hugged him but picked him up <laughs> and egged the crowd on to salute the new champion. And you don't have to do that. He could have he could have gotten away with a you know a disingenuous shoulder pat and walked out of the octagon. Right. He could have just left the octagon, but yeah. instead he genuinely went over and is like and Brandon Moreno afterwards said that like he does this aggression and all says all these things to hype up the fight that yes. in real life he's a he's a savage fighter but he is 
you know, he, he's a person that, that cares about love and respect. And, and I do think that as an MMA fan, it's something that this sport can provide, this, this interesting juxtaposition of things that not a lot of other sports can provide quite the same. Right. And so with that hyping up, most people don't understand, like, only for UFC champs, it is their, like, basically their job financially to hype up fights because they get a percentage of that pay. They only get a, a small amount of base pay, and then they make their big money on the amount that people buy their pay-per-view. And so lots of times, one of the guys will try to be the bad guy. So you get some sort of entertainment, like a WWE-style script. And Conor McGregor, of course, he made he that He does famous. that all the time. Yes, <laughs> and he sells mega pay-per-views. So that's why people even if it's not their personality, will hype it up like that. And then afterwards be like genuinely good people. And it's just basically to sell fights and, you know, but it's not everyone's cup of tea. That's why George St. Pierre is one of my favorite fighters. So he's like super respectful before and after the fight. Mm -hmm. And he's just himself. But yeah. that Robert means, Whitaker, the same thing. Yeah, I love Robert as well. You know, the Reaper. He's yeah. such a good dude. And so it's all about, you know, selling a fights. And people who aren't MMA fans, they attach on to storylines like that. The good guy versus the bad guy. And so that's why these fighters will take on personas like that. And mm -hmm. so it's not about they're a brood or anything like that. It could just be fake just to sell more pay-per-view money because maybe they can't even pay for their camp because um, their base pays so low, which is, it's sad. The, there should be definitely an alley act, basically, for MMA. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important to understand. Like, for me, as more of a, a casual MMA watcher, like, I grab... But he's one of the good casuals, I promise. <laughs> We're going to talk about, like, the annoying casuals <laughs> later on. But, like, as a casual fan, like, I'll, like, tune in to some of the bigger cards... Like, you know, when Conor McGregor was doing his title defenses, I would pay attention to that. I would at least be somewhat intrigued. Like, and, and I would watch those fights. And then, you know, sometimes I would go in and watch the prelims and that kind of stuff. So more or less, that's kind of how I was watching MMA more so casually. And, you know, those storylines of like good versus bad or when a particular person gets like, really hyped up or like does something really dumb <laughs> yeah. then then i get a little bit more intrigued so like for me as more of a casual fan mm -hmm. like that's a good way for me to get into the sport right. and for me to maybe pay attention to more uh different fighters so yeah exactly and sometimes you know you sometimes if you're not taking it seriously a guy like like to be honest, I'm not a fan of Conor McGregor at all. I much prefer the respectful martial artists like GSP and, and Robert Whitaker. Uh, but I've also never liked trash talking in any sport. That's just, that's yeah. not who I am. That's not what I believe is right. But yeah, so sometimes, you know, you need a guy who says something provocative. And, you know, if you've got your friends over there, like, what did he just say that? And, it's, <laughs> yeah. and, and you can have fun with it. And sometimes, you know you need a guy like Tiago Santos who has Mjolnir tattooed on his chest because he takes his shirt off and all, all your friends who don't know about fighting is, oh my goodness, who is that? <laughs> who would do that? And are, am, I, like, am I about to see him like dominate his opponent tonight, <laughs> right? Like it's another, and just kind of to finish off this, this thought here is I think that um, mixed martial arts, just like martial arts in general in any sport, 
can be a very positive force in the lives of uh, of its athletes. I think it is easy to focus on the narcissistic side, this or maybe the people idolizing other people, and, and sure, that's in there. But at the same time, it can change people's lives, like the current heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. Every fight fan knows about his story. If you're not a fight fan, I would encourage you to Google this and it's like amazing. look it up for at least like a couple of minutes. It's amazing. Uh, he was born into a destitute family in French North Africa, uh, Cameroon, I believe it was. And when he was younger, he was literally shoveling sand in a mine for peanuts. And when he tried to escape this life, he ended up homeless on the streets of, of France after be basically getting on an illegal boat and then being turned back numerous times. And now he he picked up boxing first and then MMA. Now not only is the he's he the UFC heavyweight champion, but he's brought a lot of awareness to his family in, in Cameroon. His the first paycheck he got from the UFC, he used it to buy his brother a truck so his brother could provide for his family back home. And another good example is a, is a guy like Ian Heinisch, a middleweight fighter who at one point in his life was literally in prison in the Canary Islands for drug trafficking because he made a lot of bad decisions earlier in life. He eventually got out of prison, picked up fighting and now his life is on the straight he's on the straight and narrow he's left that behind and he's trying to he's trying to move on and show other people that they're not defined by their mistakes as well absolutely uh so even a local talent like hakeem dawadu mean hakeem dawadu yes uh he's calgary's ufc fighter uh great dude um but he basically he was a a juvenile who's getting into trouble and stuff like that and one of his therapists uh, basically uh or people who were look looking after him suggested he go into muay thai and muay thai basically changed his life and he went turned his entire life around and didn't get into gangs or and stuff like that and started focusing and now he's like a muay thai champ and he's now in the ufc competing in the featherweight division so it martial arts it can be a good outlet for people it doesn't promote necessarily bad behavior these people who are criminals turned it around they've made a living out of fighting and stuff like that so it's it's good to see you know feel good stories like that and realize that martial arts is an important thing in people's lives and it's a lifestyle not necessarily a sport mm -hmm. yeah and i think to to finish it off uh as promised annoying casual mma fans and i think this is this is something else that gives the sport a bad name because these are the kind of fans like i said who want to watch two men engage in rock'em sock'em robots in a cage until one person falls unconscious or probably they would they would likely prefer it if both guys knocked each other out at the exact same time. I mean, like, that's very entertaining. <laughs> yes! <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is, right? Yeah. But, but, but at the same time, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that MMA is... Like, because it blends so many different techniques, it's such a high-level game, high-level sport, and... You know, maybe you can speak a little bit to, well, first of all, grappling is as legitimate of a strategy as as striking. And I think that's my pet peeve. Like, if you, there are these casual friends who are like, oh, they're wrestling, or this one guy's trying to play jujitsu, that boo, they start booing. It's like, <laughs> you know what, watch boxing or kickboxing if all you want is striking, right? Because right. MMA is is a well-rounded game. And I think the other thing you notice is that, you know, go watch an MMA fight between 
Well, depends on who it is. If it's Nate Diaz or Darren Elkins, it's probably going to be what Tyson just described. It's probably going to be some form of rock'em sock'em robots yeah. and, and a lot of trauma to the head. But, you know, you you look up, say, Robert Whitaker's fights, GSP's fights, Wonderboy Thompson's fights, uh, Israel Adesanya or, or you know, people like that. Like, it is incredibly highly skilled. Like, every move is measured. Every strike is, is calculated. Defensive adjustments happen in the milliseconds and your ability to basically outplay your opponent at this game of chess also like when do you wrestle somebody when do you surprise them with a takedown attempt that's much more effective than if they see it coming and you're just like diving for takedown attempts there's so much strategy in there so yeah what is it about all of this that makes mma potentially a very interesting sport to watch right i think first of all i'll defend casuals a little bit <laughs> just a little <laughs> we were all we were all casuals at one point uh joanna young who is was the female strawweight champion brought me into it with her trash talk uh, alongside ronda rousey and everything and her like trash talk and her trash talk and conor mcgregor i got in during that era so we were all casuals at one point it's the casuals that don't change that annoy me <laughs> that who basically just come into the sport and then they think they know it all. Like, mo- what most of the time that I hear with most of these casuals who don't change is that, like, oh, that guy's 125 pounds. I bet I could knock him out. <laughs> and it's like, okay, stop. You've had no. too many beers. Let's put the beer down <laughs> and think logically here. Um, but, yeah, no, when people see grappling and, like, most of this stuff, it is really hard work. It might look like they're laying on top of each other, but you have to remember... That's like 120 pounds or 150 pounds away. Or in some cases, 260. Yes, laying directly on your chest where your lungs are supposed to expand and you cannot breathe. <laughs> and so you got to understand that these are legitimate techniques that, you know, you might not be able to do or might not understand. I think lots of people would benefit just going to a jiu-jitsu class to understand <laughs> if you like UFC um, what's going on because you'll realize and I gain an appreciation for how hard it is. But like... You go to other sports and you're like, I the fans aren't like, oh, I could st- skate faster than Conor McGregor. I mean, I, mean, make Conor it. Uh, I, I always do that. I, I don't know how <laughs> good Conor McGregor is at skating. <laughs> Might be interesting to see one Dang day. It. <laughs> yeah, Con- pay-per-view Conor McGregor versus Conor, Conor McGregor, McGregor. <laughs> yeah. in in skating. Yeah, that, yeah. that's. Yeah, but no, like I was great. saying, is that in other sports, fans don't be like Conor McDavid. I could beat him in a skating match. Why do they do that with fighters? Like saying mm. that cha- that guy's a champion. I could take him in a bar fight. Like no, you can't. <laughs> you wouldn't say that about LeBron James or anything like that. You no, know, so. I could take LeBron James in one-on-one basketball. Like no, you couldn't. <laughs> you, you just couldn't. Uh, yeah. I think it's just natural because everyone knows how to throw a punch per se that they think egos get in the way and be like well he's small i can take him yeah leave your ego at the door when you do a martial art and you know but most of these fans who are super casual don't do a martial art to begin with (laughs) they don't understand that no no and and you know what i now that i think of it i think that we do see like casuals in, in in other sports like for example in football casual football fans want to see every pass launched 30 plus yards downfield and when teams like the tennessee titans try to execute a run game in the second half it's basically run the football pound it up the middle it's only two or three yards at a time but the strategy behind there is you 
chew the clock is what we call it and you keep the opposing defense on the field and you tire them out and there's so many football fans that are like this is boring i don't want to watch this i want to see touchdown catches like way the heck down the field and it's i think it's the same you know it, it's the it's a similar thing where i think ultimately educated uh mma fans are able to recognize okay a jujitsu match in the cage may not be the most raw entertaining thing but i can still appreciate the skills being put on display and i can still appreciate the fact that their fighters are trying to execute the game plan that they believe will bring them success because i you know i think at the end of the day another thing casuals don't understand because they don't do martial arts and they're not having to provide for themselves this way is that do you want to be an exciting 10 and 8 fighter or do you want to be the champion even if you're a little bit on the boring side yeah absolutely i think people underestimate how much risk it takes to implement some of those crazy moves like you risk getting knocked out why would you want to do that if you're moving your way up to champ one loss could mean setting you back three fights so there is a lot of you know safe bets and stuff like that uh that you have to go through and with you know martial arts in general i think people just need to if they understand grappling more some of these what they call quote unquote boring techniques Hmm. they would be more interested in it i introduced my roommate to ufc and mma in general and she actually now likes grappling more than the striking Hmm. even though in the beginning the striking is what intrigued her Hmm. because i would sit down and explain why that's so scary like oh my god he has the back and she's like why does that matter i'm like rear naked choke like he's gonna get choked unconscious you know and 45 (laughs) seconds later the ground specialist locks the choke in (laughs) exactly exactly or you know he could flip him over or he sh- he should do that kind of thing and so if you just you know casuals learn a little bit about it you'll see how exciting it really mm-hmm. is so. Yeah, absolutely. It's a high stakes game. And while it is not for everyone, for those who are interested in it, there's really a lot to study and a lot to explore. I'll, I'll conclude with this, that as someone who has aspirations of play by play commentary in my future, MMA, I'd be terrified to call just because it would require so much, not only knowledge of different martial arts techniques, but the knowledge to correctly identify what's happening like yes you have you know your color commentators like former fighters like michael bisping and daniel cormier who you will rely on to talk strategy in the middle of the fight but when you're john anik or you're brandon fitzgerald some of these play-by-play guys you have to be able to i mean this sounds like you have to be able to tell a right hook from a left straight and you know you have to but you also have to be able to point out that like oh this fighter is circling to the other fighters left and that might leave him vulnerable to to certain techniques because every play-by-play commentator sets up his color guy or hopefully in future more it will be more like her color guy uh for for this and and i just have the immense amount of respect for mma journalists and mma broadcasters who know fighting well enough to as it's going on correctly identify ooh, you know x is moving to, towards y's power hand you, it's so easy to not catch something like that but yes. in many fights it's the difference because guess what? Someone lands a knockout punch with their power hand. And so, yeah, it's high stakes game. I think it's very fascinating and, and definitely it's something to, it's something to, that you could check out if, if you're at all interested, but folks, that's, uh, that's all we have, uh, today here at the, uh, the, the draft dojo, uh, if we <laughs> want to call it that, the, the draft board podcast, martial arts special, hopefully we will, we will revisit this at some point in time, but just remember, don't be a hero. And grappling's a lot more than just hugging your opponent. <laughs> so for Jacinta Specht and Tyson Warkington, my name is David Song. See you later from the draft board.
Thank you for listening to The Draft Board. Podcast music, intro, and outro is produced by Graham Bass. Your hosts, again, are David Song and Tyson Workington. Come back next week for more insight from the rink, the turf, and the court. See you soon.